Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm a goblin. Joining me is Liz, who's a gremlin. I cause problems on aircrafts. That's why you're on the no-fly list. Yeah. <laughs> Our book this month is Snuff, which, from the title, I would have assumed it to be a death story if I hadn't read this before. But he doesn't even make an appearance. Yeah, I... Just immediately assumed, I was like, I don't know, like drugs or something. I don't know exactly what snuff means, but death is a, another good guess. Snuff means a lot of things, as we will find out in the trivia section. Originally published October 11th, 2011, and coming in at 104,000 words, Snuff is the 39th Discworld novel and 8th in the Watch series. The title is a word that can refer to a tobacco powder, a term for extinguishing a light source, part of a colloquialism about whether or not someone is meeting the expectations placed on them, or a dismissive term for murder. At one point, a character describes the game of Crockett, which is an exaggerated combination of croquet and cricket. The brief tangent about snobs punctuating their sentences with what refers to the interjection spelled W-O-T, an old English word meaning to know. The reference to Omnians believing that murder was the third crime ever committed refers to the story of Cain and Abel, whose parents, Adam and Eve, committed the first two crimes, the theft of the fruit of knowledge and public indecency by being naked in the Garden of Eden. The degree to which Snuff and the other Discworld books influenced the TV series The Watch is a matter of debate. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 11 hours and 29 minutes, with the Tony Robinson abridged version coming at four and a half hours. The book was nominated for the Locus and Prometheus Awards, and won the 2012 Bollinger Everyman Wodehouse Prize. We open with an excerpt from a book about goblins, one that is also being read by Lord Vetinari, tyrant of the city of Ankh-Morpork. The patrician mentions a particular phrase to his secretary, the dreadful algebra of survival, before their conversation turns to the commander of the city police force and his imminent vacation. The dreadful algebra of survival is, like, such a great phrase because it immediately makes you go, like, wait, what algebra? Yeah, in the name of explaining things, because that's what this podcast is kind of for. Yeah. The variables in an algebra equation would be, like, the amount of resources that one has available to them, right? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's like, so if the amount of resources you have is, like, very low, then you make a lot of compromises with how you want to behave in order to balance the equation. Yeah, definitely the reveal of what exactly he's talking about later on um, definitely was a little, like, chilling. Sir Samuel Vimes, Duke of Ankh-Morpork and husband to Lady Sybil Remkin, is leaving the city to visit the Remkin family estate out in the rural region known as the Shires, accompanied by his wife and their son, young Sam. As a working-class city-dweller, Vimes is completely out of his element in the countryside, from its non-polluted river, to the nighttime cacophony of animal sounds, to the discreet yet ironclad laws of conduct surrounding the bourgeoisie, especially those self-selected authorities known as the magistrates. Luckily, Vimes has a confidant in his manservant, Willikins, 
who also grew up on the mean streets of the city, but has learned enough about the customs of society to be able to explain them to Vimes. There are so many incidental characters in this story. Yeah. <laughs> the servants of the Ramkin estate are like entirely perpendicular to the plot. Like they intersect at one point, which is the scene where they arrive and that's it. <laughs> like I'm inclined to wonder if there was like a dropped subplot that was going to be sort of a Downton Abbey parody. As it is, I think the idea is to both showcase how unprepared Vimes is for life in the country and to get the reader speculating about who's involved in the inevitable mystery, which is akin to the mental state Vimes is experiencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know there were definitely characters I had completely forgotten about until the end of the book where they like pop up again for another very brief scene. So I think it serves to like set the mood a little bit without like cluttering the amount of people you need to keep track of in this book too much. Not long after that, there's a bit referencing Jane Austen, where a widow with six adult daughters invites Sybil and Vimes to tea, and Vimes ends up lecturing the girls not to simply wait around until their aunt passes away to leave them money for a dowry. He tells them to find jobs to make their own way in the world, and that he and Sybil own a downtown property in Ankh-Morpork where they can get started. And one of those girls, literally named Jane, mentions wanting to be a writer. <laughs> Not being much of one for Regency literature, I can't really speak to how this scene plays to fans of the genre, whether it's cathartic or cringeworthy. It was a relief to me personally when, after they leave, Sybil reveals that Vimes giving the girls a swift kick in the upper-class patriarchy was exactly what she and their mother had hoped would happen. Yeah, I mean, I quite like Jane Austen. I've read a handful of her books and have reread Pride and Prejudice multiple times, but this did feel like a little cringeworthy to me the entire time, and I was just like, ugh, like, I know, like, by our modern-day sensibilities, this seems really out of touch, but, like... It's a different time and place, and there are a whole mess of other factors that needed to be considered. And so, like, that little scene with Sybil afterwards is a bit of a relief, because it's like, okay, then, like, this isn't Vimes just, like, speaking way out of turn, because he just, like, doesn't get it. Yeah. Soon enough, Vimes crosses paths with recurring antagonist Lord Rust who warns the commander not to stick his nose where it doesn't belong. This, of course, confirms for Vimes that there is something out here worth investigating, and he immediately resolves to get involved. The Shires may be outside of his jurisdiction, but he can't ignore injustice. Lord Rust is, like, so deeply, like, he so directly leads Vimes to the plot here, that part of me feels like he can't be this oblivious, right? Like, this is not some sort of, like, clever reverse psychology or something. I don't think Lord Russ has ever reversed anything. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think that's fair. But it's like, come on, man. <laughs> no subtlety. Yes. The commander also pays a couple of visits to a local pub, the Goblin's Head, named for one of its decorations the trunken head of a literal goblin, who are considered vermin by law and customs throughout the world. The commander has a tussle with the village blacksmith and probes him for information. He tells Vimes to meet him at the place known as Dead Man's Cops at Midnight. Those who have read the book and are listening will know that I'm kind of speeding through a lot of the Act 1 stuff, 
because like a lot of it is i don't want to say padded but it's um it takes a, a leisurely pace through the first half i'd say yeah, like I definitely kind of struggled to get into this book because it felt like it didn't actually start until we were like well into it. Which I think, again, is trying to use the text and the narrative to convey the emotional state of the characters to a certain extent, which like mm-hmm. I always appreciate from a meta perspective more than I enjoy reading it. I think. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And especially as like people who like to tell stories in some way or another, and this can apply to people at large regardless of what the specifics are, there's some appreciation for craft even when it's not like really working for us. I I, I don't think this book would have worked any better if the first like, I don't know, 50 pages were condensed down into like five because then there's so much like scene setting and understanding that now suddenly is just like entirely gone. Yeah, I think you could probably condense the first 50 pages down to maybe like 25 or 30, though. Yeah, I definitely think it's a, a little like on the long side, but it's a heckin' chonker of a of a novel. Oh yeah. <laughs> Vimes goes home in time for his nightly visit with young Sam. We see that a previous ritual, that of Vimes reading Young Sam a bedtime story, has been inverted. Sam now reads to his father. The latest book for this activity is The World of Pooh, written by Miss Felicity Beadle, who coincidentally lives not far from here and is one of the guests at the dinner party that evening. I do think this is like a very like sweet like callback to the other books. Like it it's it, it warms my heart. <laughs> Vimes is a good dad. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's had practice parenting, like, at least half of the police force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, he's had some warm-ups. At midnight, Vimes and Willikins make their way up to Dead Man's Cups. The blacksmith isn't there, but they find a pool of blood and the severed claw of a goblin. The next morning, Vimes is visited by Chief Constable Feeney Upshot, sole lawman of the Shires, who timidly tries to arrest the commander regarding the disappearance of the blacksmith. Vimes, disgusted with how the constable says he answers to the magistrates rather than the law, refuses to comply with this request and instead takes over the investigation. We mentioned Lord Rust a little bit ago, and the narration describes how that guy tends to ignore facts that don't suit him and bullies his way to the forefront of things. It occurs to me here that you could draw some interesting parallels between that and how Vimes acts here. My guess is that those were unintentional, since they're explicitly referenced in the text, which Terry Pratchett was not shy about doing. Yeah, I I do think this book kind of wanders in some territory where, like, Vimes is at his, like, viminess, with just being very gung-ho about trying to do what he thinks is right. And it sometimes feels like maybe it's stepping on some toes a little bit. It's like, I have a hard time saying that he's, like, wrong in the end because I really much I very much don't think he is but it definitely has moments where I'm just like this feels like maybe the wrong way to handle this situation yeah I mean like he's not wrong kind of because the narrative structure of the world is set up that he will be correct yeah you know the whole Watsonian versus Doyleist explanations like 
the mm -hmm. Doyleist explanation is kind of that things tend to work out for a lot of Discworld protagonists because that's the tone of the story and how Terry Pratchett likes things to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense and it's like, it's not real life, so I'm not going to get like too in the weeds about whether or not it's right or wrong because at the end of the day, it's just a fictional story <laughs> published like 10 plus years ago. But yeah, it's just, it didn't entirely work for me. The ending, I think, contains perhaps the most egregious example of that. We'll talk about that when we get Yeah. <laughs> Soon enough, Vines and Feeny are accosted by a goblin named Stinky, who yells at them for justice. Feeny is dismissive and hostile, but Vines decides to hear the creature out, and the two policemen follow it into a nearby cave. What did you think of Constable Feeny? I like him, like, in general. I don't think he's necessarily a character that has a lot of, like, he, he's not a very deep character, but I do think he grows over the course of the book and he grows into somebody who's like very confident and assured and is very likable. So, you know, I like him overall. I don't I don't think he's like super terribly like noteworthy like some of the characters in The Watch proper are, but I think he makes a lot of sense in this book and especially for like Vimes as he's getting older to like share his knowledge with younger people people going into police work there's a recurring i don't want to say running joke but it's just like a recurring noticeable thing that feeny is half i want to say agatian like that being the discworld equivalent of just like a pan asia which was discussed in the book interesting times where we gave i think perhaps a bit too much of a pass to that story mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and it's very present throughout the story that Feeney has that ancestry. And I don't think that it's like necessarily mocked, but like it's, I think, considered notable in a way that like borders on uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I think that's totally fair because it definitely kind of has the vibes of like, oh, here's the like token black character in this thing and let's have them talk about what it's like to be black all the time, you know, where it's like, it just feels like they're trying like a little too hard to like make it very obvious that this character is not white or not straight or not like typically abled in a way that just was like, well, you're addressing that thing in a very weird and not normal way to the point where it's like the audience can't just like interact with this thing without stepping into all of that as well. Yeah. So this is where we get reintroduced to a sort of character from from the previous watchbook, The Summoning Dark. In that story, it was a monstrous primordial presence that snuck into Vines' psyche and pushed him towards enacting brutal vengeance on the perpetrators of a conspiracy. Here, it seems to have become much more tame and well-spoken and grants Vimes the power to see in the dark and understand goblin speech, although Vimes still worries that it will take over and make him into a more vicious person. I kind of like this. I think it makes a lot of sense as, like, a sequel shift for the, like, villainous entity from the first book. It feels like it just recontextualizes it, where it's like, this thing is not exactly just a bad thing. It's just kind of a force in the world, and it has things it can do that are beneficial and it has things it can do that can be extremely negative and the consequences of it are entirely what Vimes kind of will lead it to do. Yeah, very fair. You know what this actually kind of feels like to me is like the relationship that the Dark and Vimes have in this story? Mm-hmm. What's that? It, it feels like the middle point 
between the Summoning Dark's introduction and just like mostly defeat in the previous story and mm-hmm. a follow-up where like the Summoning Dark would take over and like turn Vimes into a killer. Yeah, because I mean, I think this is like, okay, Vimes gets a little comfortable using it, you know, because it's like, well, he allows him to see in the dark and he could speak with the goblins and, you know, and then maybe one thing leads to another and suddenly it's overwhelming. (laughs) One thing leads to another and just like, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps less said sooner meant it. Yeah. (laughs) Plot things happen, (laughs) let's put it that way. In the heart of the goblin caves, Vimes is shown the corpse of a goblin lady, whom he realizes was the source of the blood and the claw that he found on Dead Man's Cops. He pledges to bring the murderers to justice, which earns him some trust with the goblins and with Miss Beetle, who was in the caves and explains to Vimes that her mother was raised by goblins and taught her to understand and love them as sentient beings. Yeah, I think something that this book does really well is it shows a lot of compassion for the goblins. And it's like, even the text and vimes both will be like, "Mm, they're a little gross. Like, they collect their own snot. Like, that's not exactly, like, super cool with us. But it doesn't necessarily, like, try to belittle them for that. Like, it understands that they've gone through a lot of bad things and are deserving of respect at least and without having to like air quotes earn it in some sort of way yeah we'll come back to that yeah (laughs) but also just like miss beetle herself i really enjoyed the backstory that she gave about her mother being raised by goblins and like embracing their society singing their songs and such Mm -hmm. and then getting just sort of brutally dragged back to the human world yeah i mean that's like super heartbreaking a lot of elements of the goblin culture evoke the first nations peoples of north america Mm -hmm. and just like the thing that miss beetle's mom went through kind of evokes the boarding schools especially in canada yeah and just like other stuff that white people did yeah i mean it's like well i do appreciate that the goblins are just kind of like treated with like i said compassion like they are very much the book deeply cares about their well-being that connection is pretty easy to draw and it's a little uncomfortable and i'm not entirely sure if it makes me uncomfortable because it's having to face a part of history that sucks or if it's because i think it doesn't handle it super well i mean it can be both yeah Also, one other thing is that people tend to draw a certain amount of comparison between Miss Beetle and J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. All I will say on that is that, like, Goblet of Fire was published in the year 2000. This book came out in 2011. J.K. Rowling's stance on magical creatures being treated as slaves and such is, I think, pretty definitively answered. Yeah. I got just, like, big Miss Frizzle energy from her, so (laughs) I like that one better. (laughs) Back in Ankh-Morpork, Sergeant Fred Colin and Corporal Nubby Nobs visit a tobacconist where the sergeant accepts a totally not a bribe as part of overlooking the obvious signs of smuggling. Inside of a cigar, he finds a strange, beautifully made stone pot, which he is unable to put down despite the vivid, debilitating hallucinations it seems to be giving him. When... 
the setup for this book happens and it's made clear that they're going to the countryside and they're getting away from Uncle Morpork. I was like, weird, it's going to be a watch book without, you know, the usual cast of characters. And then this scene happens and I was like, never mind. Although, like, some of the other watch books have been very light on this supporting cast, let's be real. Mm-hmm. I think this one's definitely, like, a little light on other characters. And to be fair, I think that's totally fine. Meanwhile, in the Shires, Vimes continues his investigation, learning that something related to goblins happened three years ago, and the most that he and Constable Feeney can find out is that it involved an employee of the Magistrates by the name of Mr. Stratford, who it seems also killed the goblin woman on Dead Man's Cops so that he could spread her blood around and start the rumor that Vimes had killed the blacksmith. We've mentioned in previous episodes how the Discworld books have a few recurring character archetypes, and Stratford is definitely cut from the same cloth as several other villains we've seen. The Patrick Bateman types who kill because they don't truly believe that those around them count as real people. Yeah, he feels very, like, consistent with a theme, which makes me appreciate the fact that he's just not in this book a whole lot. Yeah. Like, none of the villains are really very present in this story. Uh-uh, no. <laughs> yeah, we get, like, one scene with them in the background, and then there's just sort of a, a mentioned but not tangible presence. Yeah, it's like Vimes is just kind of picking up the pieces of everything that they've done so far, rather than, like, you know, they don't have the big climactic battle at the end. It's not like a, a normal story where it's like, yeah, the bad guy fights the good guy, and then all the battles in between are them facing off against each other. Meanwhile, it's like, it's more of like Vimes is just picking up after them. Vimes also discovers that one of the goblins, Tears of the Mushroom, can play the harp so beautifully that Vimes runs to get Sybil and young Sam to listen to it as well. While their son gives Tears of the Mushroom the biggest hug he can, Sybil takes Vimes aside and gives him carte blanche to find those responsible for the mistreatment of the goblins and ensure that they are punished to the full extent of the law. I want to come back to the harp music stuff later, but for right now, it's nice to see Sybil fully on board with Vimes in the pursuit of justice rather than kind of tolerating it. Yeah, that is nice, especially because in this book, since they're supposed to be on vacation, it does kind of feel like Vimes is sneaking around to do this the entire time. And it's like, come on, man, can you not just like disconnect for a couple minutes to spend time with your family? <laughs> it's like, I get you have important stuff to do, but... Yeah, it's like, I like to think that if I was in a position to do something about the systemic injustice of like wherever I was vacationing I would probably put aside the like relaxation for a reasonable length of time yeah it's like I, like I said earlier I have a hard time saying that Vimes is like wrong but mm -hmm. I don't know maybe like reschedule this with your family <laughs> Cutting back to Angmorpork, the Watch soon learned that the object Sergeant Colin found is an Ungu pot. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> I mean, the audiobook probably does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so these pots are of paramount significance to the goblins. They make them to store things that are important to them, including certain bodily secretions. In this case, the pot contains the soul of a newborn child. One of the officers, Wee Mad Arthur, is sent to the continent of Hawandaland to investigate the plantations where the tobacco for the cigar was grown. 
During this investigation, Captain Angua von Überwald, a werewolf, interviews a goblin who goes by the name Billy Slick, and Billy demonstrates noticeable contempt for Angua pots and other goblin traditions. This leads Angua to reflect on how human society will only accept other races if they adopt human mannerisms. Yeah. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> Sips tea. Yeah. In the Shires, Vimes receives a visit from a lawyer acting on behalf of the magistrates. He has come with a warrant for Vimes's arrest, and once again, the commander refuses to play by the magistrate's rules, instead going to find Feeney, who has just learned that the rest of the goblins have been rounded up and put on a boat to be shipped off to who knows where. The two policemen set off to chase the ferry, deputizing Stinky along the way. Eventually, they find the boat, just as a massive storm starts brewing. Stinky leads Vimes and Feeney along a path of river debris to leap on board, and the three of them waste no time finding the kidnapped goblins. Vimes also locates Mr. Stratford, who has been forcing the captain to continue sailing despite the dangerous weather, and the two of them have a brawl before Vimes knocks the henchman off of the boat. But there's no time to rest, as the storm has gotten too bad for them to dock, and so Vimes uses the night vision of the summoning dark to help the captain navigate along the churning current to reach the port city of Quirm. This entire, like, little scene just, like, slaps so hard. <laughs> yeah. has <laughs> like, an extended sequence, right? Yeah, it's, like, surprisingly long, but it's just, like, so fast the entire time. If you say that this book is, like, four, a five-act structure, I think this might be act three or four. Mm-hmm. After Vimes takes a moment to rest, he is surprised to get a visit from Wee Mad Arthur, back from the Hwandaland tobacco plantation, where he discovered that goblins were being used as slave labor. The Quarmian police also discover that the goblin smugglers have also been keeping the blacksmith of the Shires as a prisoner, plus smuggling a considerable amount of contraband such as drugs, all under orders from the magistrates. Vine soon realizes how useful this is to his cause. The goblins are not protected by law, but smuggling and unlawful imprisonment are crimes he can use to undermine and arrest them. He also comes up with a bit of a plan and sets back out to the Shires to enlist his wife's assistance. When Vimes arrives, he finds several members of the city watch waiting for him. Corporal Nobbs fills the commander in on how a goblin girl took the Angu pot from Sergeant Colin, and Vimes notices that Nobby and the girl seem to be hitting it off rather well. Yeah, when um when Fred Colin gets the little pot, I was kind of worried with how much of the plot that would take up because it just felt so disconnected from what Vimes was doing in the moment that I appreciate that like he gets a couple scenes for that enough to like connect the watch to being in the Shires and then it's just resolved you know they don't have to like worry about finding the goblin girl or anything it's they just immediately find her and it's good. Soon enough Vimes, Sybil, and young Sam take another boat back to Quirm to enact Vimes's plan. As they spend the night on the river, Mr. Stratford sneaks into young Sam's bedroom, where the commander ambushes the killer and has him thrown into the brig to be transported back to Ankh-Morpork for trial. In Quirm, while her husband takes their son sightseeing, Sybil organizes a concert where some of the most influential people in the world get to hear Tears of the Mushroom play the harp. The beauty of the music forces everyone to recognize that goblins are not mere vermin, and soon enough, they discuss granting them rights and recognition as sentient beings. 
What did you think of this? I don't necessarily really know what to do with it a whole lot. Like, I like it as a detail that, you know, Tears of the Mushroom is just incredibly good at playing the harp to the point that it's like kind of astounding. But it feels like a little cheap to just have so much of the like justice for the goblins come just because of that and not because like you know they're sentient beings that are capable of love and pain and a lot of things and so they have the right to be treated well this is a like a well-written lovely scene but it betrays a very privileged fantasy about social reform Mm -hmm. for one no culture should have to prove that they can contribute something meaning meaningful to the world for them to be recognized as worthy of basic respect like you said yeah it's good that vimes is quickly on board for recognizing the treatment of goblins as murder and slavery but it's unfortunate how the narrative implicitly excuses everyone who has indirectly contributed to their oppression by showing how they were not aware of the beautiful things that goblins can make and how quick they are to change their minds after the concert To have a single song be the catalyst for an immediate cultural shift strikes me as borderline disrespectful to the hard work that real-world civil rights activists have done over decades and continue to do to this day, because no matter what art an oppressed group can create, no beauty matters more to the powerful than retaining and expanding their power. Mm -hmm. It's like, ultimately, you do just have to accept the scene for what it is and move on, but I hope I've at least clarified for some of our listeners why this trope is frustrating for a lot of people, myself included. Yeah, and part of the like implication of things like this where like the people who've been mistreated prove that they are worth more than that just just does not work is because it kind of sets the expectation up that your worth is inherently tied to what you can create for other people. Yeah, which has been a recurring criticism we've had of the Discworld series. Yeah, it's like the goblins deserve like rights and peace and to be treated better than they have been in the book because they are beings. Like, I'm of the mindset that if something can feel pain, it has the right not to. And if something can feel love, then it has the right to do that. And that is all it takes for that. So it's like, why are we trying to commodify them earning what they've always deserved? On the road between Quirm and Unc Morpork, Mr. Stratford escapes from the police only to run into Willikins, who cuts him down. Like, I don't know exactly what would have been, like, a just end for Stratford here. Because it's like, I don't know, I'm pacifist and a sucker, and so I think, you know, jail for life is a better option than just killing somebody. But, like, it feels like there's a lot of, like, rigmarole just to get to this point. To the point where it kind of just feels a little like extra fluffy in a way that just doesn't really work for me. I I definitely see where you're coming from there, but like I'm also like personally a prison abolitionist, so like yeah, I would have liked for him to be able to like get the the mental health help that he clearly needs and like hopefully become like a better person over time. Yeah, do some restorative justice work and such. But like at the same time, it's made clear that Stratford is like just a flippant killer. Yeah, he's very like rotten. Like he's not like 
a complicated like villain or whatever where we ultimately want to see them redeemed mm-hmm. now he did bad stuff and he should face consequences for that bad stuff but I-, I don't know this book just feels like a little clunky and how it kind of gets to his conclusion for me i don't know that we've seen a lot of discworld villains whom i've wanted to see redeemed yeah yeah they're pretty like straightforwardly bad people <laughs> no mucking about with that Shortly afterwards, Lord Vetinari and Vines have another meeting. The commander is frustrated beyond belief that they cannot properly punish the magistrates for their crimes against the goblins, but Vetinari reminds him that they will still be publicly humiliated, their influence will be lost, and the damage will be corrected as much as possible, and because of his efforts, the goblins will be recognized as people in countries throughout the world, with all of the rights of any human, dwarf, troll, undead, or other. Yeah, it's like, that's something. Yeah. So, as the long arc of the universe turns turns towards justice, Vimes finishes his vacation and returns to find that the new best-selling novel, Pride and Extreme Prejudice, is dedicated (laughs) to him. I'm entirely convinced that the sisters are in this book at all, entirely to make this joke and for no other reason. Yeah, that that tracks. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, okay, I don't hate it, so it's fine. (laughs) So that was Snuff. What did you think? Truth be told, like, this book just doesn't really land for me. Like, I can totally see where somebody would be coming from if they love it. But I I think there are better watch books. This one just feels uh, a little slow and a little, like disjointed for me sometimes so it doesn't it doesn't work for me as good as some of the other Discworld books have but I don't hate it I go back and forth on it right because like there's some elements that really frustrate me and some other ones that I think are really like praiseworthy Mm -hmm. it's tricky yeah I think that's fair because it's like I would not say that this is a bad book I just don't think it's the book for me and so it's like the things that don't work just like really don't work for me you know they're not things I can just get past but like I said, I can get where somebody's coming from if this is like maybe their favorite watch book. Yeah. So just some broader discussion points. The lower class, like the working class people of the Shires, when Vimes first arrives, it's like made clear that he's just sort of mentally calculating how all of like the farming implements and things can fairly easily be turned into weapons. Mm-hmm. There's a scene at the very end of the story where they're just like, we didn't know um, what to do about the magistrates and like how we should have stopped them. And Vimes is just like, think about it and just like points out that they have weapons and numbers and just like at no point do the words peasant revolt enter into the conversation but like the narrative definitely uh, waggles its eyebrows and looks at them meaningfully yeah to some extent like i can get where they're coming from because it's like if you spend every day of your life using this thing in order to do your job it's not going to seem like a weapon to you you know like i have a hammer where i live that is not a weapon to me it's a tool but like it seems like it's kind of suggesting that they've like never bothered to question you know the fact that they could do more than that they don't have to just like live in this like kind of docility yeah it is an outgrowth of this like rigid social structure that functions largely because those involved in it do not think to question the hierarchical system that is in place yeah and i mean especially since they're not really the ones getting the brunt of the bad of it. You know, that's definitely the goblins. It's a little easier to like kind of mentally sweep under the rug all of the stuff that they don't like 
for the sake of maintaining the system. And I mean, that's also a thing that happens with real world politics, right? Is that disenfranchised groups are incentivized by the powerful to turn against each other so that they do not unite and dismantle the power imbalance. Yeah. As a digression, not to get puerile, but I really hope that I misunderstood what was being implied about Tears of the Mushroom saying that her name is about how mushrooms cry so that there can be more mushrooms. <laughs> but if I'm right, then that was a reference to a certain aspect of human anatomy that I feel creates a jarring shift in tone. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's just like mushroom spores on a rainy day and it's, a, it's just a little more direct than that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, forgive me for saying this, but the summoning dark strikes me as being largely unnecessary in this story. Yeah. Because like Vimes has always had this internal struggle between having to set an example of being a good policeman and wanting to punish wrongdoers as much as they need to be punished. And externalizing that second aspect into a Venom symbiote, basically, it kind of obfuscates the nuances of his characterization. In our tradition of me playing armchair editor, I think it could be extremely compelling, not to mention more focused, if instead of getting this super natural assistance, Vimes just had to walk through the caves blind, totally at the mercy of the goblins, and then work to understand their language by recognizing them as people with thoughts as nuanced and comprehensible as those of any human. And then you could maybe have Stinky be the one guiding them through the river, perhaps with Vimes acting as translator if necessary, or steering the ship like on the cover. Yeah, I think this book kind of just wants to give Vimes superpowers because <laughs> yeah. Terry Pratchett thinks Vimes is just like the coolest. But I do think that, like, your suggestions make a lot more sense for, like, the point that the narrative is kind of trying to make that the goblins have a, like, deep and cultured society that only seems simple to outsiders because they've never bothered to make an effort to understand it. Lady Sybil was very good in this book, and young Sam was so sweet. Yeah, I kind of like getting to see young Sam grow up because, like, you know, we got to see him as a little baby, and then now he's, like, you know, he's, like, an actual kid now, not just, like, stumbling toddler. And he's just full of curiosity and, like, love, and he's at that age where, like, everything is just kind of magical, and it's kind of, like, super cool to see that. And Lady Sybil is, like, always a treat. She takes some, like, direct actions in this book, to advance the overall plot that are very, very cool. It's like getting to watch her negotiating with the Dwarf King about, um, I don't know, trade with Ankh-Morpork. Pork. That's unimportant to me. But it just, I think it really highlights that like Lady Sybil is just like a very like posh, noble, wealthy woman. But the aspects of that that make her really like compelling are that she's deeply intelligent and deeply like connected to people in power. And she knows how to pull the strings in order to get what she wants out of that. Speaking of that, this book, more than most of them, really make note of how wealthy and everything Vimes and Sybil are. Mm -hmm. And I think it could have been very compelling if some amount of that wealth and power got meaningfully removed from them over the course of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What if, hear me out on this, Vimes was so frustrated and so angry at the magistrates getting away with a slap on the wrist that he decided to quit. Mm -hmm. That could be a very interesting place to take like the series. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, multiple, I think it's multiple times in this book. Like, Vimes says something to the effect that it's like, they could spend money on this thing and it would not, like, affect them at all. And so it's like, well, then, like, yeah, it also says, like, they're funding the hospital in Ankh-Morpork Pork and doing all these other things. But it's like, if that doesn't really affect your overall wealth, then why aren't you doing more? You know, you can see injustices in the world. So why aren't you trying to give money to the people who are trying to fix that? Yeah. How amazing would it have been if in the course of like trying to get rights for the goblins and everything, the two of them had basically just given away all of the money that they had and just like let themselves as sort of like working class but like as a family yeah Mm -hmm. it would have been a very powerful moment in the story it was like showing possibility of the good rich person being the one who gives away everything in the service of aiding the oppressed instead of hoarding wealth yeah i I do think like something that the discworld books do in general and especially in reference to like lady sybil's wealth is that it doesn't seem very critical of necessarily how they got their wealth or what they do with it it's just like well they have money that's it yeah and like a character does mention that they have so much money because they exploit the working class and that doesn't go anywhere yeah the books just don't want to like necessarily look too closely at that all of the other rich people are exploiting people but not Sybil and Vimes yeah so for each novel I'd like to try and distill down some of the major ideas into a thesis statement here I would say that it's almost explicitly stated in the text that survival is a relentless math problem that we mortals have to solve every day all of us working with the same variables and we cannot tolerate those who willingly force others to solve the equation in the most desperate ways or to state it without the math metaphor from each according to their ability to each according to their need yeah i think that's a good way to like to tie it all together (laughs) so now that i have gotten us on a watch list thank you liz (laughs) for joining me of course thanks for having me Thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music and to everyone for listening. If you like the show, please consider giving us a follow on Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, all of the social medias. You can join our Discord server to chat with us and with a bunch of other lovely folks about everything from discussions of the story to other stuff that's happening in the world. <laughs> and if you want to support the show directly, please consider contributing on Patreon, which gets you access to the show notes, episode previews, and at the end of each show, we give a shout out to one randomly selected patron, who this month is Dave Gumbo. Thanks, Dave. And we close out each episode with a reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote. It has been said by someone years before that to see Sybil Ramkin's upholstered bosom rise and fall was to understand the history of empires. Yep, that's the one they voted for. (laughs) Tune in next month for Raising Steam. Until then, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.